We're not crazy, the system is. Tune in to Madness Radio, Voices and Visions from Outside Mental Health, Wednesdays 6 to 7 p.m. Eastern Time, on Pacifica Affiliate WXOJLPFM 103.3 Valley Free Radio. Produced by Freedom Center and the Icarus Project. Streaming live, podcasting, and archived at madnessradio.net. And thanks for tuning in to Madness Radio. This is your host, uh, Will Hall. And today we are doing a show on youth and suicide. Today joining us from Washington, D.C. is Leah Harris. And uh, one of the reasons that I uh, wanted to have Leah on the show today is that this is actually... Uh, the kickoff for um, a tour that the Icarus Project is going to be doing of a number of different cities in um, the uh, South and the Midwest. We're actually going to be in uh, Blacksburg, Virginia at uh, Virginia Tech on Monday, and then we'll also be in a number of different cities, Indianapolis, uh, Chicago, Minneapolis, uh, Asheville, and we are going to be talking on college campuses, and suicide is going to be a topic that's going to come up so you'll be hearing more about the icarus mad gifts week tour in some of the upcoming shows here on madness radio hoping to get some audio from the tour and have it be part of the radio show um so i'd like to introduce uh, leah now i'll read her bio leah harris is an activist writer daughter of a mother and father who were both labeled as mentally ill and is herself a survivor of psychiatric abuse as a child and teen Leah is a board member of NARPA, the National Association for Rights Protection and Advocacy, and for Mental Disability Rights International. She is a past chair of the Protection and Advocacy for Individuals with Mental Illness Advisory Council. Her writings on mental health issues have been published in New York City Voices, a consumer journal for mental health advocacy, adbusters.org, Off Our Backs, a feminist news journal, uh, The Icarus Project, and Street Spirit. Leah was a participant and editor of Mind Freedom Support Coalition International Oral History Project, and she's currently working on a memoir about her experiences in the mental health system. Leah lives in Washington, D.C. So welcome to Madness Radio, Leah. Oh, thank you so much for having me, Will. Yeah, I'm really glad to have you on the show. It's been, uh, we've been wanting to have you on the show for a while. I'm glad it finally got a chance to happen. Yeah, so. Me too. Um, so yeah, so you were actually one of the keynote speakers at the, al- the big alternatives conference that I was at with a number of folks from the Freedom Center at St. Louis, um, St. Louis, Missouri, um, a couple weeks ago, and there were about mm. 800 people from around the country who do peer advocacy and peer counseling, and I kind of just want to, I'm really excited to have you just read the poem that you read um, at, the, uh, at the conference, just kind of start off that way. How does, how does that sound? That sounds good. Sounds good. Um, This is a poem called Teenage Mental Patient. I want to tell you what it's like to be a teenage mental patient, to have your every movement scrutinized, your every uttered word analyzed, then be accused of paranoia when you point this out. This is what I learned inside. In order to get out, you have to hide how you feel. You have to lie until you don't even feel real. It's torture, and after enough pain, you learn to play the game, walk the walk, talk the talk, smile and take your meds, and every morning, make your bed. You can always tell the new admits, wild-eyed and still high on coke, crack, Zyprex, and Prozac, jacked up on speed, still bleeding from their last last suicide attempt, gauzy white bandages encircling fragile wounded wrists. I saw Lil Brazy 
14-year-old South Central Gangster Girl so engulfed with anger and indignation at her unjust incarceration. It took two grown women and men to subdue her. They held her down, bruising her brown skin purple, shot her up like an animal, like the unreachable wounded animal they considered her to be. Oak Grove Institute was a mad warehouse for troublesome kids of all sorts. Jason was 10, told adults to fuck off, for which they labeled him with Tourette's. Jack was a cross-dressing Nirvana fan. Andy's mother hit him. He hit her back and was labeled oppositional. Kizzy and Lil Brazy were self-identified hood rats. Marie's crime was a developmental disability. Sue idolized Michael Jackson obsessively. Sarah Lynn had Satan worshippers for parents. Sue and Sarah Lynn were lovers, for which they were put on 20-foot restriction, because you ain't allowed to love no one in there. Yeah, they look down on that in there, and, and you certainly aren't allowed to be queer. And me, I was a majorly depressed, severely emotionally disturbed, borderline personality disorder, obsessively compulsive medium to high suicide risk with bipolar tendencies, who wore too much eyeliner and fishnet stockings, wrote poetry that didn't make sense to them, skipped school sometimes, and dreamed of being editor-in-chief of my high school paper before they locked me up. The reigning philosophy is that youth is pathology, because so-called crazy kids aren't allowed to be kids. You are forced to be patients. You are drugged, undereducated, over-therapized, psychiatrized, and victimized. And they never mention the word trauma, because here's the explanation for your life's drama. Your brain is broken and will fix it with institutional food, lack of sunlight and fresh air, and we'll fix it with drugs. We'll fix it all with drugs. I remember us crazy girls, wild with boredom and rage, scraping anarchy symbols into our skin with an eraser, the only weapon we possessed, trying to erase the skin that held us in, watching scab turn into scar, growing bitter and dying inside, watching the days go by. We were released, all of us, one by one, sentences determined by our insurance policies and our acting abilities, sent back to the people, institution, society that oppressed us, to the adults who abused us in the first place out of their own fear, ignorance, and pain, and so we'd soon end up on the back wards again, hanging on to one another to survive, trying to keep alive some shreds of hope in our hearts, grasping on to fading dreams as our spirits slowly came apart at the seams, and that's what it's like to be a teenage mental patient. Leah, you know, I've, I've heard that. I've heard you do that poem probably three or four times now, and always it's just really, really, um, really touches me. I and mean, thank you. <laughs> thank you so much for having the, the courage, just because I think it's, it's the anger and uh, the truth, really, of the abuse. And, and this, is, this is just so much torment that um teenagers go through and you went through and it really touches my own experiences having been in the in the system so i want to thank you for reading that um for us on madness radio and thank you everyone for listening yeah yeah well listen i i was thinking maybe you could tell us now a little bit about the background i mean how did you end up how did you end up being a teenage mental patient and being locked up and what is it that um that brought you into the into the system well, uh, I guess it's it's sort of hard to talk about my experience without talking about my parents' experience, as you touched on when you read my bio, that, you know, I'm the daughter of, you know, two quote-unquote crazy people. And that has such a powerful legacy. I, um, I always grew up with this enormous fear of becoming like my parents. 
um, because I, I saw the way their lives unfolded. This, this idea of, you know, mental illness really signaling the death, <laughs> I think, of everything that one cares about. That's what I saw. I saw all of their dreams, you know, slowly slipping away over time. And, and I uh, ended up um, being taken away from my mother when I was five and a half. Because, you know, here she is, a woman diagnosed with schizophrenia, you know, living on the poverty level, absolutely no support, single mom, you know, I mean, and she just, you know, wasn't able to to raise me on her own. And so I was, you know, um, I went to live with the grandmother who actually had sort of had my mother institutionalized. Um, so, of course, she was also looking for psychiatric solutions for me. And... Um, I remember the first time when I was seven years old, I started to ask questions about, you know, kind of existential questions. Why was I born? Why was I, he- you know, why am I here? Um, you know, the questions that the great philosophers have asked, you know, over the centuries. And I was, you know, packed off to a psychiatrist for asking those questions. And I overheard a conversation between a psychiatrist and my grandmother, and she said, well, you know, with her history, she has more than a 50% chance of becoming severely mentally ill. You mean with and, your, you know, yeah, with your family? Yeah, at the age of seven, I didn't exactly understand what that meant, but I knew it was really bad. So they were basically saying that, oh, because your your parents are this way, that you're, you're going to be this way, basically. Yeah, it's sort of this um, genetic determinism that's very scary um, when I think about it now, because it really has no scientific basis, but it's, it's sort of treated as, as scientific fact. And so um, I internalized that. And that eventually became somewhat of a self-fulfilling prophecy. And um, when I hit puberty, I sort of really started to go through a lot of emotional distress. A lot of it related to unresolved trauma from the things my mom and I went through when I was really young, when we were both very vulnerable. And none of that was ever addressed, ever, never talked about. And um, so my family took me to a psychiatrist. This was right after Prozac came on the market. It was a brand new drug. I mean, they had no idea how it would affect, you know, adults, much less children. And, you know, I was immediately put on the drug, and you relate to this experience, Will. I mean, I, at first I just was, you know, as high as one could be. I mean, I was just, uh, you know, my happiness was untouchable. I was floating around, um, not sleeping, just so high on life. And um, very soon after that, I just crashed. But I was still, you know, I was agitated. I still had that intense energy, but I wasn't, you know, happy anymore. I was just keyed up. And the insomnia got worse and worse, and then they gave me another drug to make me go to sleep at night. And that was when I started having thoughts of harming myself, which I hadn't had prior to going on the Prozac. You had and never you had never been suicidal before taking the, the Prozac? No, I mean I was I was distressed. You know, I I guess you could call it, you know, depression, whatever. Um, you know, I was definitely having some emotional stuff, but it didn't have that kind of agitated, you know, kill yourself sort of quality to it. It yeah, was that impulse that those impulses, that suicidal impulse. Yeah, that that was not a part of my experience until I went on the Prozac and that was seen as a symptom of my worsening illness rather than um, an adverse reaction to the drug, which which now I'm a textbook textbook case for adverse reaction to Prozac. When I when I look back, you know, and um, 
at it now and how quickly it all unfolded. Um, so they increased the dosages of this drug that was hurting me. <laughs> this is basically what happened. Right, you're still complaining, so obviously you must need more drugs if you're still complaining, right? Well, right, you know, oh, you know, this is the, her underlying illness is worsening. That was like the mantra, underlying illness. Right, right. Underlying illness, you know. And uh, so, you know, it kind of went from, and I, and I do always say this, that I know for some people, self-injury is a coping mechanism. It doesn't necessarily mean that someone is suicidal, and a lot of times they get treated as if they are suicidal, which is really damaging. But for me, it was very intertwined. And so it wasn't long after I started self-injuring that I really actively uh, was making attempts to take my life, which, of course, that's how I got, you know, into um, the mental hospital for the first time. And um, after, you know, of course, a completely dehumanizing experience in the emergency room where I was just treated like, you know, a piece of meat. And um, so that was that cycle that kind of got set up where I just had this revolving door um, cycle of hospitalizations in my adolescence. How, how long did this go on? Did this go on for years? It went on until I was a bit over 18. It all started when I was 14. Uh, so you were on Prozac at four, at age 14? Mm-hmm. Yeah, and then they tried me on Prozac, and then Zoloft came out. I think it was in maybe 91. And then the last one I was on was Paxil. Um, and then, you know, other ones. But they sort of put me on every single SSRI that, you know, that was on the market at that time. And always the same effect. And when I was, and when I was on Paxil, I actually developed an obsession with knives, which is also now I've read is not uncommon. <laughs> Sudden obsession with knives and, you know, I mean, things like this that just kind of popped up. So with this, so this went on for about four years that you were in and out of yeah, hospitals? Yeah, it, it was my, it was really my whole adolescence. You know, my well, whole adolescence. And then how did you, how did you pull yourself out of this? Well, it was interesting. I, my one of my last hospitalizations, I was um, had just become a legal adult, and so they put me on the adult ward, and that experience really freaked me out because I saw my future, mm. and I saw that I was going to end up just like my parents if I didn't do something. And it, I, I had already acquired this kind of what is called learned helplessness where I felt like really dependent on the, profe- the professionals to fix me, yet I also really kind of resisted them at the same time. It was this weird dynamic. And I, at that point, I was in a really horrible group home, and so they discharged me from the hospital, and I was in this awful group home, and I was just like, I can't. I can, this cannot be my future. And somehow, I don't know what it was, I just decided that I was no longer going to consume what they were offering. And it was almost, I guess you could call it like a moment of grace. I don't really know how to describe it now, but I, you know, just kind of ate my pride. And I was, I'm very lucky, even though my family has, you know, we've, we've had kind of a tumultuous relationship. I, they did agree to take me back from that group home and encouraged me to sort of get back into school, which was a really good thing for me because it, it sort of felt like, you know, part becoming part of a world that wasn't associated with my illness and you know so slowly I just slowly just like baby steps you know I graduated from high school which I had been really behind in that and just kind of 
inched my way back. Um, and I consider myself very lucky. They agreed to let me go off the psych drugs. I said, you know, if anything happens, I swear I will go right back on them. And I just was able to, you know, I don't know, prove myself somehow. Um, so there, I, I consider it a lot of luck and also family support at the time when I most needed it. So, and now you are a writer, you're an advocate, you're very much involved in human rights organizing around mental health issues. When did you start getting involved in, in that part of it? Well, it's actually a really funny story that I always love to tell <laughs> how that all came about. Um, I was in grad school and, again, was having a lot of struggles. And for some bizarre reason, after being out of the system for quite a while, I sort of reached out to the university counseling center. I, I was really new in the area. I didn't have a good support system, good friends yet. And the, as soon as they heard my history, they're like, you've got to go back. You're not, you're not medicated? What? You have to go back on meds, like now. And I said, you know, no, um, I really don't. I did not have good experiences. I couldn't articulate why, but I just, you know. And so the, the therapist said, well, you've got to go get this book, Listening to Prozac by Peter Kramer, and that will really kind of help you understand why you need to, you know, go back on, you know, medication. And so I marched to the university bookstore, and they didn't have Listening to Prozac, but they had Talking Back to Prozac by Peter Bregan. And that, that moment, like, completely changed the course of my life. You know, I, I picked it up, I read it in, in, like, one sitting. I was like, oh, my God, I can't believe that someone is articulating what I went through. For the first time, I mean, everything I read in there was like, yes, that happened to me. That's what I went through. And I had never been exposed to anything like that. And um, and I wrote to Peter Bregan, and I said, you're telling my story. And he, he wrote back and said, okay, you know, you've got to get in touch with the, there's a whole movement of people working on these issues, and, you know, that was in um, the year 2000. And uh, so ever since then, this has really been, you know, what I've been dedicating my, my time to and my, my work. Yeah, that's, I mean, it sounds like you had a really close call with the system and um, we're just kind of like luck and circumstances you're able to get out of it. And then you had another close call and then things, <laughs> things sort of turned around and went another direction for you. Yeah, I mean, it's, it's sort of been these interesting experiences of synchronicity that I can't entirely account for, but that have, you know, uh, you know, I just feel like I've been very lucky to have those experiences. Yeah, you mentioned grace, and I just, I, you know, I think about my own experience, and there were there were definitely some moments where I just got really lucky, and I think it could have gotten a lot worse for me mm -hmm. if um, providence hadn't intervened or luck hadn't, fate hadn't intervened, and um, I definitely count myself very lucky. And so, you know, you're someone who's, you know, you've seen and lived with your, your parents, you've been through the system, you saw and heard all these voices of all these young people when you were in the hospitals, and now you've become uh, a, um, an advocate, a national human rights advocate. And I really, one of the reasons I invited you on the show today is that I, I want to um, really try and get at this question of suicide and how is it that um, society can really best respond. I mean, suicide is, um, you know, it's, it's really something that it's just, it seems so common sense. It's like, you know, suicide is a terrible thing. When people are suicidal, they need help. Let's get them help. And then somehow the mental health system and the pharmaceutical companies have really gotten in there and twisted 
it around. And now we get into a situation where um, this, the, the danger of suicide is something that's used to inflict terrible abuses on people in the mental health system, just put them into, into horrible trauma and, and force people and restrain them and force drug them and lock them up and solitary confinement, all in the name of preventing suicide. And that's one of the well, things. Well, I, I mean, it's really, you know, we'll prevent, we'll prevent you from killing yourself even if it kills you, you know, I mean, it's yeah. really like that. And or as long yeah. as you're in the hospital and then once you're, <laughs> once you're out, you know, I think they're mm-hmm. actually, um, Peter Stotsny, who's a psychiatrist in New York actually has, um, told me about some studies that were done that the suicide rate actually goes up among people who've been hospitalized. There's a correlation between a hospitalization experience and an increased risk for suicide. But it's also, it seems to be true that there's a tremendous mystery to suicide that, you know, we know a few things that, you know, men are more likely to actually commit suicide than than women are that um that um people who have attempts of suicide are are more likely to actually succeed than those who are on their first um first attempt at suicide Mm -hmm. but in terms of actually being able to predict who is actually a risk for suicide or who is actually going to commit suicide or even how to best prevent suicide there really isn't hard science there really aren't um, simple and, and easy answers. Would that, is that something you would agree with, or do you have a, a different sense of that? Well, yeah, I mean, I, it's, I completely agree that there truly are no easy answers. And I think, you know, in our culture, there's just this attempt to really kind of suppress um, a real truthful dialogue about suicide. There's just so much terror and fear. Um, so I think that that's what we deal with is just this, this total culture of, of fear about it. And there's a there's even a belief that, oh, if we talk about it, it's somehow going to trigger it or it's going to bring it up or it's going to cause right. suicide. Or <laughs> well, yeah, I guess they, they talk about the copycat syndrome, you know, that, that if we talk about it, then we're going to encourage other people to do it. Yeah, and, which uh, yeah. there is, I mean, there is some truth to that, but that's really about how things are reported in the media in a kind of a tabloid, sensationalist way. That that shouldn't be mm-hmm. preventing people in communities or individuals or families or friends from talking about suicide. How do you how do you think that the suicide, those kinds of dialogues about suicide, can actually be be helpful? It seems to me that one of the things is like learning that hey, the professionals don't have all the answers, and in fact, sometimes are going to recommend treatments that are going to make things worse. That's one mm-hmm. thing that we can learn from having dialogues about suicide. Well, sure, and I think it, you know, really was that people like Peter Bregan, who were talking about you know suicide as an adverse effect, what they call suicidality. I don't really like that word, but um, he was considered a quack and you know on the fringe, really until the FDA was forced really to admit that, you know, these drugs were um, causing people to be suicidal when they hadn't been before. And you were part of the congressional hearings around that, is that right? Well, it was myself and 60, something like 60 families and individuals, just one of us, one after the other, after the other, you know, testified. And and I was really one of the few survivors of an attempt. It was mainly that the family members were survivors of, of young people who had taken their lives. So I think that that's one really essential part of the dialogue that needs to happen that is is coming out, although, as you know, the, there's sort of a backlash against it. There was this recent pseudo-study that said that, well, the suicide rate actually increased as antidepressant prescriptions decreased. 
um, which has been exposed to be, you know, completely funded by industry. And there's some, you know, really good evidence about that on, on the um, Alliance for Human Research Protection uh, website. Yeah, the AHRP.org is yeah, their website. You know, that that, and the, the media just sort of picks up these studies that are authored by industry hacks and, you know, says, wow, you know, the recent study shows and, you know, I mean, exactly. and then whips up the hysteria. It's, it's just like the, uh, the greenhouse effect, you know, the, the greenhouse effect is starting to come out and then industry, the chemical pollution industry, the carbon industries, um, put out fake research and get it into the media and do PR campaigns trying to claim that the science is on their side. And the pharmaceutical companies are doing exactly the same thing. Mm-hmm. When was, when did those hearings take place? Uh, it was in February of 2004, and then later that year, oh no, I'm sorry, it was September of 2004, and then later that year, the FDA uh, authorized what was called a black box warning, which is the strongest warning that can come with any drug before you pull it off the market about the, the suicide side effect. And, and they said under 18, although now I think they've extended it to... 25. I'm not 100% sure about that, but they've been exploring it, this effect as it relates to adults, which makes sense to me because what would happen when you all of a sudden turned 18 where, you know, the effect would be different. Um, well, it's, I think it's important to mention that, I mean, there's, there's definitely an increased risk of suicidality for many people associated with psychiatric drugs, but it's certainly not all people. And, no. you know, many people do feel because obviously these are drugs and they change your your brain chemistry, they change your bodies and they have an effect. And people sometimes people do feel that it helps them to cope by taking um, whether it's antidepressants or anti-anxiety drugs and um so that's I mean that's one option, but the problem seems to be that that's being pushed as the only option and the dangers and and sort of downside of the medications isn't being honestly explained to people. In fact, instead, I mean, this sounds like this was told to you that, oh, you have a broken brain, you have a genetic disease, and therefore you need to be on these medications, just like, you know, a diabetic needs insulin. Although I think now that Zyprexa has been exposed to be causing diabetes, they're going to be using the diabetes analogy a lot less. <laughs> yeah, maybe. So, but is that, that one what happened? came back to bite them. Yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. Although Eli Lilly does sell diabetes medication. So, um, <laughs> Leah, is that something that was told to you, the whole genetic disease Yeah, oh, I remember from the earliest time, you know, hearing from my psychiatrist this whole chemical imbalance theory, and I remember once, I don't know where this came from, but I sort of cornered the psychiatrist in one of my, when I was hospitalized and said, you know, I want to test. I want to test that shows that I have what you say I have, and he just, like, walked away. Right, couldn't quite yeah. produce it. Yeah, There's no, you know, I mean, you know, I want to, you know, I just said, give me some proof, give me some evidence that I have this thing, you know. So yeah, and as we know, as we know, they still cannot produce any evidence. Even the pharmaceutical ads themselves are today's. If you actually read them carefully, they say um, the chemical b- imbalances are believed to cause depression mm-hmm. or chemical, and they really they're forced to kind of in the fine print acknowledge that these are. So if you're just joining us, this is Madness Radio. I'm talking to Leah Harris, who is an activist writer and a mental health advocate who's uh, joining us um, from Washington, D.C. So, Leah, let's talk a little bit more about, I I know that your own experience was that you were not actively suicidal until after 
taking uh, psych drugs. But I knew I know that you've done a lot of work and you're writing in your writing uh, groups and um, in your advocacy work with a lot of people who are struggling with suicide and who are trying to come up with good, humane policies for how do we, how do we as a society really start to prevent suicide? And I think one of the things mm-hmm. that we talked about was a dialogue and getting some accurate information out there and not having the kind of tabloid sensational um, soundbite approach. Um, but what are some other ways that, um, that we could really honestly start to, to take a look at this, this issue and, and help people who are, who are maybe facing suicide? Yeah, and I think, you know, I should mention, too, that even after I went off the psych drugs, you know, sort of well into, you know, my 20s, I would still have suicidal thoughts. So, you know, I know it wasn't 100% connected to the psych drugs, so I, you know, I definitely, you know, can relate to having them, <laughs> you know, yeah, without yeah. that. Um, well, I think and, that's actually part of the dialogue too. Is that I think a lot of us have suicidal thoughts and suicidal periods yeah. at one point. And yeah, I think and the, that's the, that's the thing is that I I don't really like the word stigma so much because I think the word is actually stigmatizing. But just to sort of break down the sense of isolation, like you know, I'm the only one that feels this way, or what is wrong with me that I want to kill my, you know, that's where I remember feeling like, God, I am so sick. Like, why do I feel, and if I had just heard, you know, even from a professional, you know, a lot of people feel this way. That would have done so much for me to just kind of lift me out of that sense of isolation and shame. So I think to just really acknowledge and, and so many people have these thoughts all the time, you know, and there's a continuum of thinking about it to acting on it, but it's all part of that, that same continuum. And we need to really, as a culture, get honest about that. To not uh, ex- kind of exaggerate or freak out, because I know in the support group work that I do with the Freedom Center, people come in and they talk, we talk about suicide. We say, mm-hmm. yeah, I'm so-and-so is suicidal and I'm suicidal. And yeah, I have, oh, do you have a plan? Yeah. Do you have means? Yeah. It doesn't mean that doesn't mean we call nine one right away and freak out. It's like, look, this is this is something that people are, are struggling with, and um, calling the authorities may not be the best uh, the best solution for people. Um, do you think that there are situations? I mean, what I what I seems clear to me is that there are situations that people it makes sense to be suicidal. I mean, you talked about I'm um, being queer in the United States. I mean, there's so much homophobia, mm-hmm. and we know that the suicide rate among um, gay youth is r- so much higher than among straight youth, and that's clearly a result of um, homophobia and um, oppression um, f- on the basis of sexual orientation. So it seems like suicide is is often part of. There's a reason to be suicidal, and it's understandable reason. Well, that that's really true. I mean, people generally are not suicidal for no reason. <laughs> you know what I mean? I mean, pe- people face so many overwhelming odds in their lives, and it, it it does make sense that, you know, it's like, I just need to take myself off this planet. And I remember, you know, trying to think through the whole screening issue, and I, I came up with an alternative screen where I, you know, asked questions like, have you been abused? Do you feel like an outcast? You know, all these things that, and, and I said, if you answered yes to any of these questions, like, no wonder you feel suicidal. Yeah, Leah, maybe you know? for, for listeners who maybe may not understand, can you tell us a little bit about the screening issue and what that's that's all about? Well, uh, under this whole concept, there's, in, there's a suicide prevention world out there, and one of their 
big things is early intervention, which, you know, sounds really great. Um, but unfortunately, I think the, the methods are not that great, which tend to mainly focus on screening. So there's a whole movement um, to screen in the schools. They call it teen screen, you know, so it's focused on high school, but there's also this initiative called Kid Screen, or they're going to screen even younger and, you know, try and detect that way. And, you know, that actually has been shown to have a hugely high, um, you know, false positive where, you know, people will be kind of caught in the mental health radar. I mean, it's just, I think it's something like 85% of people who take who take the screen end up, you know, positive for some kind of mental illness. So when but you it's, say, it's, meant to, it's meant to catch suicidal thoughts and behavior. So when you say screen, you're talking about people who are given these questionnaires and they're put through kind of tests to see whether they have mental abnormalities. Yeah, and and one of the things they are specifically screening for is, suicidal behavior, suicidal thoughts and behavior. And, you know, one thing I can say is that if you want to beat a screen, you don't want people to know you're suicidal, you know, you can figure out how to beat a screen. You know, and I, so I think it's, it's screening is, is so far less than, than what we deserve, <laughs> you know, what young people deserve or people of any age deserve. Um, and I think it sort of gets back to that that first of all, you know, breaking down the silence and the shame around it. And then to really help people, it's not just about preventing someone from killing themselves. We need to give people reasons to live. And that's not the dialogue that's happening. It's all about prevention. And, and it's sort of like, don't bother keeping me alive if I don't have anything to live for. And so that's what I think where I think the important work lies. Do you think that there's a positive side in some strange way, a positive side to having a suicidal impulse within someone in the sense of like wanting to have something to live for? Well, that's what I really think it is. It's sort of just this intense, it's actually sort of a, it's hard to describe because there's a paradox there. It's such an intense longing for life and not finding that that creates such a despair that it's, it's like it's better just to not be here. It's that intense longing for freedom or whatever it is that the person is longing for can't be fulfilled um, or for love or to be understood or, you know, whatever it is. Um, so I think that's, that's really what drives people, um, you know, to consider taking their lives. And um, so I think it's, it's about giving people... You know, I mean, yeah, there's huge social circumstances that we need to change. And I always say, you know, we shouldn't be ex expected to adapt to a completely toxic culture. You know, but while we're working to change that culture, what can we do to keep ourselves alive and well? You know, not just alive, but alive and well, despite all of the heartbreak in this world. Um, and so that's, you know, where I feel like we got to really be talking about wellness in a serious way, not just, you know, about exercise or, you know, exercise every once in a while, although exercise is great. But that's sort of like the level that people are talking about with wellness. Um, but to just really be um, sharing skills, you know, is there, what are some things you've found that have been helpful for you when you've been feeling at your lowest? You know, oh, you tried that? Oh, you know, I mean, just sort of putting those ideas out there and these kind of things don't really get discussed. Um, whether it's, being out in nature, whether it's, you know, eating, you know, cutting out processed stuff, 
from your diet or um, really kind of taking some time to, you know, be quiet and, and meditate or whatever it is. You know, it's, there's no one size that's all fixed. But, you know, we need to be sharing all of the skills we have. Do you think that the, the kind of the suicide prevention approaches that are out there make a mistake by fi- focusing too much on kind of like the problem individual and not looking at the larger thing of like how is the school as a whole functioning or how is the community as a whole functioning or the workplace as a whole functioning? Well, right. I mean, it just is so apolitical. It's, it's an apolitical movement, just like, you know, psychiatry is, is extensely political, but pretends to be apolitical. And, you know, I remember coming across this book called The Teenage Liberation Handbook, which was about how to, like, drop out of school and take charge of your own education. And I, you know, was in my 20s when I found that, and I was like, God, I wish I had had something like that, you know? I mean, because for some people, school, if it's not their family, you know, school, just if they're an outcast, if they're queer, whatever it is, you know, they have to go to this place every day that they feel utterly oppressed by. And, you know, it's like if we just had the option to you know, drop out and, and you know, homeschool ourselves and do things, you know, that's like even one option that, you know, would probably save a lot of people from, from killing themselves. You know, just things like that, you know, just to, to realize that so many people's issues are environmental, largely environmental in nature. And that families, if there's a young person who's suicidal in the family, you know, the young person will become the scapegoat, you know, if they go to family therapy rather than seeing that there's interpersonal dynamics within families that are often intergenerational oppression. That's also political. Intergenerational trauma that's passed down, you know, and um, not resolved and just, you know, the, the young person bears all of that. So, you know, really I think Suicide prevention needs to be much, much, much more holistic than it is right now. Instead of instead of just seeing the problem like ah, this is the per- this is the person who's suicidal, rather than looking at the context. Yeah, the I mean, because we exist in environments, and we're all affected, you know, by the environment in which we we are growing up in and living in. Yeah, I liked what you said earlier about you know having having something to live for. It seems to me that. You know, an individual who is struggling with uh, suicidal feelings because they want to have something to live for is in some ways, you know, it's in, in a weird kind of way, it's it's almost better than someone who's just kind of, who's living, but it's just like given up. I mean, we don't, mm-hmm. we, we don't see people who've given up and just kind of go through day after day as some kind of problem, but we do see the people who are struggling with suicide as a problem, that's kind of kind of backwards, you know. I mean, it's kind of, there's a way in which you can kind of live, live a living death in life if you just sort of let go and you just say, okay, I'm just resigned to my circumstance. Whereas mm-hmm. the suicidal impulse, in some ways, has a kind of a fighting spirit too. There's like an intense energy there. That's well, that it, it is. It is a cry. I mean, they call it a cry for help, and I agree. You know, it's it's like, hey. <laughs> listen to me, damn it. Look, you know, I need people to pay attention to what's going on here, you know, and I think that that's, we need, we need those kinds of alarm bells, you know, but at the same time, you know, I, I don't really, I'm not one of those people that feels so good about that idea of, well, you know, people should have the right to take their life, you know, I mean, I feel like it's very hard to talk about, but I, I don't feel like 
harsh coercive methods of keeping people from taking their life is the way to go. But I, I have a hard time standing by and just kind of saying in a sort of apathetic tone of, oh, yeah, people should have the right to take their life. You know, I think I want to actively be giving people reasons to live for. Yeah, like a, you know, because I am so glad that I didn't take my life. You know, I, I'm horrified at times that I came very close to, you know, successfully, quote unquote, doing that. And, and, and I'm sure that that is the experience of so many other survivors of suicide attempts. Yeah, the right, the right to suicide just doesn't, it doesn't, I understand from a freedom standpoint, but it has kind of like too much of like an individualistic kind of libertarian, like we don't care. We don't care that you don't have a reason to live. Yeah. So you have the right to suicide. It's like, it's like the disability rights issue and euthanasia. Right. I mean, yeah, I mean, I'm very sympathetic to the sense of like, if someone is in pain, that they should be released from the pain. But on the other hand, it's like, wh- why are we as a society saying, oh, we're not going to give you a, a right to live. We're not going to give you um, a reason to live and we're going to support your right to, to die. You know, it doesn't, yeah. there's something really wrong with that. Or or a society, I'm thinking of a, a horrible, the horrible film Million Dollar Baby where a young woman has an ax, has a boxing injury and then mm-hmm. she um, it commits suicide with the help of her trainer because she's lost her dream. Mm-hmm. And like, well, what about supporting her to find another dream yeah. or recognizing that when you lose your dream, you're part of the human experience. We lose our dreams sometimes and we have to find other dreams mm-hmm. rather than just saying, okay, you know, you're, you're a boxer and you can't box anymore. You're disabled. You're in a wheelchair. That's horrible. Being in a wheelchair and disabled is bad. So of course you want to kill yourself. I mean, there's something really, really wrong about that. And so yeah, again, it's sort it, of celebrating these kind of, patriarchal norms of you know what success is <laughs> i mean i don't you know that kind of thing where um yeah what's you know, nor- normal able-bodied people yeah yeah normal, it's just, yeah it is people. it's very much this this standard that is very kind of cookie cutter so leah if you could be a, a the head of a counseling service at a at a university or a college and you could like design this suicide prevention program. What what would you what would you design it as? Well, first of all, I would you know get these um, dialogues going about. I mean, like I can think of like a really good campaign would be like you're not alone, and to just have these kind of frank conversations, you know, and to have professionals even coming out and saying that they had felt suicidal and that. Uh, and to have people actively talking about the ways in which they've overcome that. And, you know, to sort of take it like a sort of an activist stance on campus of, you know, let's give people reasons to live and, you know, don't let the world beat you down. The world needs you to survive and stay alive. And let's, you know, fight for what we believe in, you know, which is a better world for all people so they don't feel like they want to take themselves out. So, you know, so they would include, you know, campus dialogues, starting, you know, peer support groups going for survivors because it's the worst. It's, gosh, you know, when you come out of that experience, it's it's so isolating and demeaning and just to, you know, have had some, you know, kind and compassionate people, you know, tell me that, that there was hope and coming from a perspective of having been through it themselves would have really meant so much to me. And, and then also to just really, you know, talk about holistic wellness. You know, like wellness promotion as the best form of suicide prevention. And, you know, the the fact of the matter is, is that, you know, our universities are functioning more and more in this kind of corporate way. 
And we need to be talking about that too, that it can be very isolating, very, you know, not supportive of difference. And this focus on, you know, achieve, achieve, achieve. Um, So I think, you know, we need to really be looking at the culture of universities and how it it can sort of contribute to people feeling hopeless. Um, And with there not being enough support, Systems, you know, a lot of times, you know, young people, the first time they're away from their family, you know, and it's it's highly stressful. Um, so I think there's just a need to like really acknowledge um, the environment as well in a in a critical way. That's that's a great answer. I mean, I would add just really making sure that they're they're not pushing pills and uh, the doctors are not spreading misinformation about. Um, what it what a diagnosis is and you yeah. know chemical imbalances and it's it's really hard because a lot of kids they come to school they go away to college and they show up and they're already on psychiatric drugs and they've already gotten these messages that you know they've got a, you know different a different brain and different genes and then of course the whole society is saturated with pharmaceutical company advertising i mean it's mm-hmm. it's not to say that the solution can come by having a really good progressive you know college counseling center policy it has to be real changes in the society as a whole but i really like what you said about having the dialogues and getting these discussions to happen you know when we were talking earlier it it, um it brought up something about you know the people who are if someone does commit suicide and um the people around them who are the survivors and this actually happened uh to me someone who um was pretty close to my to my family um committed suicide several years ago and Mm. You know, I wasn't really, really close to her, but she was part of my, um, part of my family. And, um, it was just a really, it was just, just a really difficult, difficult, difficult thing. And, and, you know, there's a part of me that it just is so much mourning for, wow, why didn't this person get more help? And they're gone now. And I, I just, I can't, I kind of think of her and I'm thinking, God, you know, I, I'm not going to talk to her again and I'm not going to see her again. It really kind of breaks my heart, you know, and then, and then, part of there's a part of it too it's like well wait a second you know why why did you do such a mean thing to us why did you because it, it, do you think that there's a way in which there's a there's like a if people are maybe feeling powerless in the world that that suicide is like their one form of power and they can kind of express their anger through the suicide am i am i totally off in what i'm saying or does that make any sense you know, it's so it's so hard to to know, you know, exactly what a person is experiencing at that moment. Um, it's probably such a, I mean, I guess I can really only speak from my own experience, but it's just this real utter despair, which is probably connected with some kind of anger. But it, um, I don't know that when you're in that state, you necessarily know how it will affect others because it's just a sense yeah. of I'm worthless and nobody will care if I'm gone type of thing. And it kind of doesn't matter. You know, that's at least what I remember experiencing. I know from my own, I'm just thinking about my own experiences. I mean, there, there have been that times when I've been really close. I mean, I have attempted suicide more than once. And, um, the, um, I think one of the things that does help hold me here is the feeling of just, I don't want to hurt the people. They're people who I really care about. And I would just, I just don't want to hurt them very much. You know, the survivors get, get hurt, but it is, it is a mystery and it isn't and something that we don't really, you it's, know, it's know the about. It's ultimate disconnectedness. 
is really what it is because I think, you know, like fundamentally, you know, we're born connected. And as we get beat down, beat down, beat down, the sense of disconnectedness gets to the point, you know, where I think the suicidal expression is the extreme expression of that. And so, you know, I think the fundamental question is how do we help people feel connected again, you know, to themselves, to each other, to this earth, you know. And how do we, and which is a question for all of us, because the, our communities are being torn apart by this capitalist, media-driven, militaristic society we live in, and we have to mm-hmm. rebuild our communities. I mean, it's, I'm really, I just want to thank you for coming on the show and talking with us about all this and revealing so much of yourself. It's really encouraged me to reveal some things about my life too. And I, you know, it's just, it, it's, it's a hard topic, but maybe we can um, kind of end on, on a different note. And maybe if there are, you know, anybody who's listening, who's maybe struck, cause I'm sure there are people who are listening who are struggling with suicide or have a friend or a mm-hmm. loved one who is struggling with suicide or they've been affected by this issue in some way. What kind of message would you want to uh, give to folks as we, as we kind of wind up the interview here? Just as someone who's been there, I mean, there really, really is hope out there. You know, there are supportive organizations, you know, that you can reach out to, like the Freedom Center and, you know, like the Icarus Project, you know, people who really understand that it's not your fault (laughs) and that it's really this world we live in, you know, that drives a lot of us, you know, to feel like we want to end our lives and and that it will change it will change and that there's so much so much hope and that the world just really really needs you to stay alive we need you to stay and sort of fight with us for a, a fight for a better world you know and to take that energy and to and to use it to make this a better place that's really worth staying alive in and it's within all of our power to do that Leah Harris, thank you so much for um, joining us um, today from Washington, D.C. on Madness Radio. Thank you for having me, Will. You've been listening to an interview with uh, Leah Harris. Leah Harris is an activist, writer, um, and advocate um, who works with the National Association for Rights Protection at Advocacy and has written for a number of publications, including Off Our Backs, Adbusters.org, and Street Spirit. Um, That's about all the time we have this week. Thanks a lot for tuning in to Madness Radio. You've been listening to Madness Radio, voices and visions from outside mental health. Madness Radio is broadcast every Wednesday, 6 to 7 p.m. Eastern Standard Time, on Pacifica Affiliate, WXOJLPFM 103.3 Valley Free Radio in Northampton, Massachusetts. For our live internet stream, podcasting, show archives, and more, visit madnessradio.net. Madness Radio is co-produced by Freedom Center and The Icarus Project. For more information, check out freedom-center.org and theicarusproject.net. For more mental health radio, listen to the news hour from mindfreedom.org, Wednesdays, 4 p.m. Eastern Standard Time. If you have an idea for a story or guest on Madness Radio, or you just want to share what's in your head, contact us at radio at madnessradio.net. KWMD, Kasilov. 90.7, Anchorage 104.5.